So for the past couple of months now, we've been working through the New Testament letter of James. James was the little brother of Jesus. He was a pastor and a leader in the early church after he had become, after he had come to believe in Jesus, after seeing his brother being risen from the dead, had come to be a believer in Jesus, rose uh, up as a leader, as a pastor, and he wrote a letter to some Christians who were living in the first century to help them understand how to live out this Christian faith in their communities and in a new environment. And so we've been studying it because the the letter of James is very, very practical. It teaches us very practical things about how to live as a Christian, uh, very practical guidance. And so uh, what we're going to look at today is James's instructions about conflict. Raise your hand if you've ever had conflict. Okay, every hand went up. We've all had conflict of some sort, conflict with a spouse, conflict with our parents or our kids or a boss or a coworker. We're, we're aware of conflict in our society, right? There's conflict with elections. There's conflict between nations. There's conflict between different people, groups, and families, and, and conflict just everywhere we look. And that's not a new thing. We're going to see conflict has been around for a very, very, very long time. And so James talks a little bit about conflict and what causes it and what we can do about it. So he begins by asking a question. In James chapter 4, verse 1, James says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? What's the cause of conflict in your life? James is asking this question. And we all know the answer to this is really, really obvious, right? It's other people being stupid. (laughs) Right? Conflict is always caused by other people. It's never us. Right? It's never our fault. Conflict is always caused by someone else doing something stupid. Right? Duh. Uh, it's, but it's, it's actually a really good question. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Think of the last conflict that you were in. Maybe it was an argument with a spouse or a boyfriend or a girlfriend. What, what, was, the, what was the source of co- that conflict? What was the reason for that argument or that fight? Uh, maybe it was with, you know, parents or children. You know, you, you had an argument with your parents or you had an argument with your children or you had an argument maybe with a coworker or a boss at work. What, what was the source of the argument? What were you actually fighting over? Take just a second and think about that. If you watch the news, you see that there's conflict throughout our nation, right? Uh, in the political sphere, all over, there's people are just conflicted, are, are in conflict, are fighting and arguing and bickering over lots of different things. What's the root of our political conflict? What are the roots of our national and our civil wars? What are the, what's at the heart of church splits and, and the conflict that sometimes arises in church? Because churches aren't immune to conflict, are they? We've had conflict here. What's the cause, usually, of conflict? James provides the answer. He asks the question, and he provides the answer. Here's what he says. He says, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Talking about desires, this is code word for selfishness, selfish desires that are at battle within us. And if you think about it, James is right, isn't he? Don't we all, even within our own selves, have a battle? We, sometimes we know the right thing to do, and we also have a selfish tendency or a selfish desire. And even within our own selves, sometimes we know the thing that we should do, and yet there's a part of us that has a selfish desire that just wants to do what's right for me, 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 right? I don't know 
maybe not for all of you, but I know for me, within myself, there are battles of desires. I have selfish desires, and I have selfless desires, and sometimes those are in conflict, and I have to choose which which of those voices on my shoulder I'm going to listen to? The one that says, oh, you know, Thomas, take care of number one. You're most important. If nobody watches out for you, uh, if you don't watch out for you, nobody else is going to. And I've got the other one that says, no, 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 you've been called to, to give and to serve and to pour yourself out for others. And these, this is in conflict inside of me. In every conflict that you've been a part of, if you think about it, James is probably right. At least on one side of the conflict, somebody was acting selfishly, Right? Now, it was always somebody else. It was always the other person acting selfishly. But, but at one side of the conflict, somebody was acting selfishly and letting their own selfish desires drive the conversation. When I think back, I've been married now for, gosh, I'm getting myself in trouble here. I've got to get it right. Uh, all, coming up on 12 years I think back over some of the arguments and the, the, the fights that we've had as a married couple, and some of the things, folks, are so downright silly. Raise your hand if you've been in that boat, if you think back over some of your conflicts. Some of the things that married couples fight over, in the moment, it seems so important. And then the next morning or the next week or the next month, you look back and you're like, what in the world was that all about? And you realize that there's just, it was just a selfish desire, either in you or your spouse or both. You realize you fought over nothing. I'm ashamed to say how many actual fights in my marriage have happened over dessert. <laughs> I wish I could say I was kidding. Um, you know, we, we were, even still, right, we, we think, oh, well, we don't need two desserts, we'll just share, right? You'll just share. Try, like, cutting a piece of chocolate cake from a restaurant down the middle, just perfectly even, right? You've got to make sure that you split that thing just right down the middle. And legitimately, like, we, we've, we've, we've gotten angry over somebody taking, like, one bite too much. <laughs> Maybe you've been there, too, but... It, it, and it's, it's just selfishness. It's a silly example. It's selfish desire. How many of our conflicts, how many of our desires at their root are just us being selfish and fighting for what we want? To get a little bit more serious, and I've talked about this before, why are we shooting tear gas at women and children migrants on the other side of the border? Because we don't want them coming here and taking our stuff, right? right. <laughs> I mean, honestly, we, it, it, you see these pictures of, of, of babies in diapers gagging from tear gas that we've launched at them because we think that they're going to come here and take our stuff as if we have any claim to it to begin with, as if being born in the United States was born was anything in our merit, like we did anything to deserve that or earn that, or as if they chose to be born in countries that were torn by conflict and violence and they were trying to escape. But at the heart of it, it's selfishness, right? It's, it's our selfish desires trying to protect what we've got. And we don't want them taking our stuff. And so we have this conflict. And instead of realizing that we have so much and so much abundance and the ability to help, and there's more than enough to go around, we're, we're driven by fear and selfishness. And so, and so the, the, these kinds of things, these aren't new. 
James was writing about this 2,000 years ago, and he, he, gets, he gets a little testy with his audience. Here's what he says. He says, you desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. And if we're honest, this describes all of us at some point in our life around some category. Now, I I think James is using a little bit of hyperbole here. I I don't think there were actually people in the church he was writing to who were killing each other, right? I think he's using a little bit of hyperbole, exaggerating a little bit. But, But it happens, right? If you watch the news for long enough, people kill each other over the stupidest things all the time. Selfish desires run rampant and get out of hand, and all of a sudden, we have people who are literally killing each other over just the stupidest things. We, we want certain things, we desire certain things, and so we, we, we buckle down and we fight and we argue, and this happens in our families, this happens in our workplaces, this happens in our churches. This happens in our elections, right? How much, how much of the whole election cycle is just people fighting for what they want and their rights and their desires? Everybody else be darned, right? How much national and international conflict is a result of people who just selfishly wanting to take care of themselves and not caring about other people? So you quarrel and fight, James says. He goes on. He says, you do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasure. So James is addressing two different errors here. The first one, he says, you do not have because you do not ask God. In other words, he's addressing the failure to pray. He's saying instead of praying and asking God for what you want or what you need, you're bickering and fighting with one another. Why, James says, why don't you just take your requests to God? If you really need something, if you really want something, instead of fighting and bickering with one another and, and participating in all of the selfish games that everybody else plays trying to get your own, why not just ask God? God, who's a loving Heavenly Father, who has promised to give us everything that we need to watch out for us and take care of us, he says you don't have because you don't ask God. That's the first error. There are people who are going without things, who are fighting over things that if they would just ask God, then maybe God would just answer prayer and give it to them. The second error he addresses is praying for the wrong reasons. He says, you, you do ask, but you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives, right? And this is, this is a call for, for a, a personal, individual heart check. The things that you pray for, why do you pray for them? What do you normally ask God for? What's the content of your prayers? Are you praying for things that are just going to benefit you? Let me put it this way. If God answered every prayer that you've prayed this week or this month, would it benefit anybody besides you or people who look like you and think like you and act like you and believe like you? Are we praying for things just so that we can have what we want? Are we praying just for our own desires and our own needs? Or are we, have we been transformed from the inside out to think about the needs and desires and problems of others. In the next verse, James is going to get pretty direct and pretty harsh. I I want you to think about if if I wrote you a letter or if if I called you this in one of my sermons, you probably wouldn't like it very much. Here's what he says. He says, you adulterous people. 
not a very pastoral thing to say, is it? You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity or, or, or hostility with God? Therefore, James says, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes what? Man. Now, friendship with the world needs to be understood in context, right? James isn't talking about, you, you know, you don't have friends outside of church, right? You don't have non-Christian friends. That's not what he's talking about. Uh, you know, James is the, the brother of Jesus. He knew that his brother hung out with the tax collectors and the sinners, right? So that's not what James is talking about here. Friendship with the world needs to be understood in context. And, and friendship with the world, what James is talking about, is living by the same standards and value systems as the world. To be friends with the world is to define ourselves, to have the same value system that everybody else has. And what he's really getting at here in context is this me-first mentality. This me-first mentality. To be friends with the world is to live thinking that I'm the most important person in my life. And that if I don't look out for me, then nobody else is going to. So I'm going to look out for number one and everybody else can just do the same. Right? This is what it means, according to James, to have friendship with the world. And James says, anybody who chooses to live this way becomes an enemy of God because God has called us to live in a different way. He's called us not to live for ourselves, but unto God and for others. And so what James is saying is I can't just live for my own selfish desires and think that I can be okay with God. It's not like, me, you know, I, I pray a prayer, I come down the altar, I pray a prayer, and me and God are good, and then I can just go about the rest of my life living for me and my selfish desires and, and forgetting everybody else and think that I can be okay with God. What James is saying is that, is that the way that we interact with people around us, def, it, it affects our relationship with God. And if, we, if we're friends with the world and the system of, of having the same kind of me-first mentality, look out for number one mentality, then, then I'm going to have some issues with God. Here's why. Here's what James says. He says, Or do you think that Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? In other words, God is jealous for us. He's jealous for us. One of the metaphors that were, that's used in Scripture to describe God's relationship with his people is that of a husband with his bride. And so those of you who are married, who have been involved in a romantic relationship, you know what it means to be jealous for the one that you're with, right? You want that person's attention, you want that person's affection, you want that person's loyalty, and when they give that to somebody else, there, there's this jealousy inside of you, and it's not necessarily a bad thing, it's rooted in love and desire. And God, as a, as a loving parent, He desires us. And he desires us to live his way because he knows that his way is really what's best for us in the long run. He knows that our selfish desires, that we don't even always know what's best for ourselves. That sometimes our selfish desires are actually what's bad for us. One of the things that's helped me understand this is becoming a parent, right? When I, I, I've got, a, I've got a, a toddler at home, and if I always gave her what she wanted, it would be bad for her. Right? She would have dessert all of the time, ice cream for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Right? She, she, if I always gave her everything that she wanted and gave in to her selfish desires, it would actually be bad for her in the long run. Well, God, as a loving parent, wants what's best for us, and he knows that sometimes our selfish desires aren't good for us, and so he longs for us with, 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 with jealousy. He jealously longs for the spirit he's caused to dwell in us because he wants us to have the best kind of life, but he knows that we won't get that by simply chasing our own selfish 
desires. So James is, is pretty harsh, and he says, listen, you, you can't follow after the ways of the world and all those selfish ways of, of, of thinking and living and think that you can be okay with God. He, he calls that spiritual adultery, to, to chase after everything else other than what God has told us to chase after. But James brings it back, and after you know, coming down a little hard, a little harsh, a little direct on his people, he, he, he gives us hope. He says, but God gives us what? More grace. God gives us more grace. Grace is unearned favor. Unearned favor. God gives us more unearned favor. We, even after we chase our own selfish desires, even after we do things that we know we shouldn't do, God gives us unearned favor. He gives us more grace. Why? Because he loves us, and he wants the best for us. Those of you who have kids probably know that even after your kids do what they're not supposed to do, right, you, you're, you don't give up on them. You're still there for them. You give them more grace. Well, God is a perfect heavenly parent, gives us more grace. James goes on. He says, that is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to who? The humble. God shows favor to the humble. He opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Pride is insisting on our own way. Pride is insisting on our own way. Pride is saying, it's my way or the highway. Right? Pride is when I fight for me, 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 me. It's insisting on my own way. Humility, on the other hand, being humble is a willingness to learn and to change and to submit to God's way for us. So when we, when we insist on living our own way, we're living in opposition to God. And God is in opposition to us. Because, again, to bring this back you know, to, to my daughter, when my daughter insists on doing what she shouldn't do, we're in opposition with each other. And I don't just let her do it because it's not good for her. I'm in opposition to her. But when she comes around... When she realizes that her way isn't actually going to, to be what's best for her, that, that when she understands that daddy knows best, right, then there's grace and there's forgiveness. Humility is a willingness to learn and to change and to submit to God's ways for us. And so there's good news in this, right? It means that even if we've been living our own way, even if we've been living in opposition to God in prideful stubbornness for years and years and years and years, God is right there waiting with open arms, to give us more grace if we will just humble ourselves and admit to his way. So here's what James says. He gives us some very specific advice to deal with, with the selfish desires that, that cause so much of the conflict among us. Here's what he says. He says, submit yourselves then to God. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. What does it mean to submit to God? To submit to God is to say yes to God's rule and direction for our lives. That's what it means to submit to God. It means we say yes to God's rule and God's direction for life. It means saying no to our own selfish desires and yes to God. But we do so knowing that God is a gracious, loving, merciful Heavenly Father who wants the very, very best for us. And so we say, okay, God, I'm willing to trust 
that you have my best interests at heart. I'm willing to set aside my own selfish desires. I'm willing to set aside my own plan for my own life and how I think things should go and submit to your plan and your guidance for my life. This is what it means to submit to God. This is also what it means to resist the devil, right? When James talks about resisting the devil, it's not like, you know, the devil isn't, you know, a, a, a red horned guy with a tail who comes up and, and tempts you to, act, to, to worship the devil. That's not how it works. It's not like the devil's like, worship me, The way the devil works is by tempting us away from God. He doesn't get us to worship him. He gets us to worship ourselves and our own selfish desires and our own plans for our lives in the way that we think life should work. And so the way that we resist the devil is by saying yes to God's plan for our life. To to resist the devil is to pursue selflessness instead of selfishness. So here's what James says. This is his advice. He says, come near to God. And he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. James isn't playing around, is he? (laughs) Grieve and mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will what? Lift you up. If we want God's favor... We have to be willing to humble ourselves. And to humble ourselves means it's, it's this word that you hear often in church world. It's called repentance. Repent. repent basically just means that we stop living for ourselves. We say no to our own selfish desires, and we say yes to God. We, we give up claim over rulership of our own lives, and we submit ourselves in allegiance to Jesus as the true and rightful ruler of our lives. And in order to do this, there's, there's, a, there's an act of, of repentance, an act of confession. We have to be willing to, to lay down our own selfish desires first before God will lift us up. Once we humble ourselves, then God can lift us up, and he'll lift us up in the right way. So it's, it's actually fitting that we're, we're studying this passage on the very first week of Advent because Advent, as I told you earlier, is a time of remembrance, but it's also a time of repentance. We look back to this period of time, this period of, of darkness before Jesus came into the world the first time, and we, we see a world that was in need, a world that was a mess. And it was a mess because people like us made it that way. Because the very first people and all people after that, instead of pursuing God, pursued their own selfish desires. It was a world that was warped in conflicts and war. And so there's this great big mess that, 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 that God, who created us in love and gave us free will, and using our free will, we chose to rebel and we chose to follow our own selfish desires, and it caused so many problems. And, and God, instead of just turning us over to our own problems, Christmas is about God entering into the world through His Son, Jesus Christ, and and beginning to set things right. But Advent is remembering that that period of time that the reason Jesus had to come is because humans made a mess of everything. And so Advent is a time of repentance. It's time for us to do some some soul-searching and some introspection and to look inside and ask ourselves, are there areas of my life where I'm allowing selfish desires to control me? 
Are there conflicts in my life that are a result of me pursuing me first in my own selfish desires? And so we wanted to give you some time this morning to repent and to confess in this Advent season, to take James seriously, to, to, to wash your hands and purify your hearts, to grieve and mourn and wail over, over areas in your life where you know, if you're honest, you know that you have been allowing your selfish desires to rule you instead of God's gracious rule over your life. And so we've got some stations set up here this morning. Over here on this side, we have some post-it notes uh, with some pens. And it's just, if you've got something on your heart, if this has pricked something in your conscience where you know that there's an area or an aspect of your life that you need to repent and turn over to God, you can come up here and you can, and just write that on a post-it note. Maybe it's just... Yeah, maybe it's just a single word, but something that has pricked you, an area of your life that you need to turn over to God, where you've been, maybe it's, maybe it's political, maybe it's in your, in your family or your marriage, maybe it's at work, maybe it's just in your heart, but you know that, that there's been some aspect of selfish desire that's been drawing you away from God's plan for you. You can write that down on a post-it note and you can leave it up here on the altar as an act of confession. It is a way to confess before God your sin. You don't need to put your name on it. Nobody else needs to know. Just a single word, but you know that you're laying down that selfish, selfish desire on the altar before God. And you can leave it there knowing that as you humble yourself, right, that God will give you more grace. That as you humble yourself, God will lift you up. And so we're going to give you an opportunity in the next few minutes to confess. And one of the ways, you don't have to come up here. You can do that silently in your seat to God, right? God, God is a searcher of hearts. You can sit right there. You don't have to get up. But, but some of us, we, we need something a little bit more tangible to, to feel like we're doing something. So if you want to write down that sin or that desire or, or, or that, the name of that person that you know that you've caused conflicts with and leave it here on the altar, just be ready. If you do that, then God might you in the heart to, to do something about that during the week, but it'll give you a chance to, to, to leave that up here and, and confess before God and then leave it there knowing you've been forgiven. On the side over here, I've got two bowls of water. One has some suds in it with some soap and the other is just to rinse your hands. If you want to go through the, the, the motion of washing your hands, knowing that you've been cleansed by God, if you, if you need to confess and repent and then come and, and wash your hands and know that God's made you clean, you can dip your hands in the soapy water and then dip your hands in the clean water and then Dry it off as a way to wash your hands, you sinners. Um, you know, that's me too. Uh, so you can do that. And then finally, we'll, we have the communion station set up. Once you, once you confess and get yourself back to being in a, in a state of humility and right with God, you can come and you can take communion. We've got some bread and we've got some, some cups up here, and you can just do that on your own. We're going to play some music as we do this. It'll be, you'll have probably six or seven minutes to just come. So, so take your time. Don't rush to, to, to lay down your confessions, to wash your hands, to take communion. We'll, we'll play uh, some music up here while you do that. And then... Uh, after a couple of songs, we'll come back together and we'll all come together as one and we'll recite the Lord's Prayer, which, which is another uh, prayer of confession and, and asking God for forgiveness. So, so I'm going to say a word of prayer. Um, after that, we're going to play some music um, and you can just spend a few minutes at whatever station or all of the stations will, will help you to, to draw near to God, to confess your selfish desires, and, and, and to, to ask God for a clean heart and a fresh start, knowing that as a loving Heavenly Father, God gives more grace. So let's pray. Lord, I thank you for 
your grace and your truth. God, I thank you for your truth that reminds us that there are aspects of every one of us, myself included, that, that are driven by selfish desires. Lord, I confess that, that some of the conflict in my life is a result of my own pursuing of my own selfish desires. And Lord, I want to lay that at the foot of the cross right now. I want to humble myself. Lord, I want to submit myself to your rule. And Lord, I thank you for your grace that you have promised unearned favor as a loving parent that you will lift us up as we humble ourselves to you. So Father, during this time, I just pray that we would experience you afresh. Father, if we've been convicted, I pray that you would draw us to repentance. And then, Father, that you would remind us that you give us more grace, that there is forgiveness, that there is grace, that there is mercy, that there are second, third, fourth, and a hundredth chances. Father, that you never give up on us. So, Father, I pray that we can experience the grace that comes from repentance in these next few minutes. I thank you for this letter of James for inspiring James to write with such boldness and such clarity areas that 2,000 years later are still pricking our hearts. Lord, thank you for your truth that convicts us. Lord, and thank you for your grace that lifts us up again. May we experience both in full measure. In Jesus' name, amen.